Hello, and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. Today, we have a very special episode for you. This is the 100th, or I think maybe 101st, depending on when this comes out, episode of Being Well. I think it's just incredible that we got to this point, and it's only really happened because of all of your support. So thank you so much for listening and subscribing to the podcast. And during our first 100 episodes, we've covered a lot of ground. We did 50 episodes dedicated to resilience. And then we have our current series, which focuses on the psychological conditions. And then we have a series of conversations going on with a pretty fantastic group of guest experts. But a constant, or at least relative constant, throughout all of that has been Dr. Rick Hansen. So for this special episode, we're going to do something maybe a little bit more casual and conversational and learn a bit more about Rick's personal journey. So how are you doing today? I'm good. And honestly, I feel a little nervous about my son <laughs> interviewing me about my journey. I know, right? The, table, the tables have turned, truly, here. <laughs> That's right. Well, I think it'll be fun. And... I mean, you've spoken sort of more anecdotally or more casually about various elements of your experience throughout time, including particularly in the book Resilient. And in our series of episodes dedicated to that topic, there was certainly some time spent there. So you've spoken pretty openly in particular about your experiences as a child and what it was like to be you when you were growing up. One element of that that you particularly have mentioned is the feeling that there was kind of a lot of extra unhappiness floating around you, something like that. So to put a question to it and to kind of put it simply, have you always wanted to be a psychologist? Like when (laughs) did you decide that that was kind of the path you wanted to wander down? Wow. Well, let me speak first to what you just said there. For those who haven't heard me speak about that, when I look back into my earliest memories, which reached down into probably at the tail end of being two years old, So I was still pretty young and I have a lot of memories of my childhood. What went throughout all of them when I look back was this background contextual sense that I think is not unique to me. I think kids often have a sense of knowing things at the time that are perfectly clear to them at the time, but they couldn't put into words or they knew them more in the wallpaper of their own mind in the background. Anyway, what I knew was that people just seemed unnecessarily tense, stress, uptight, bickery, conflict-oriented, pissy, <laughs> etc. <laughs> Kids I was around, my siblings, you know, my, my parents, uh, just watching the grown-ups with each other, it just seemed like bleh, a lot of unnecessary suffering, a lot of unnecessary unhappiness. And so in there for me was this wistful sense of this unnecessary suffering, simultaneously a sense of a kind of watchful, quiet, peacefulness deep inside me that was in contrast to all that, and a longing that was implicit early and then became more explicit over time to do something about it, to lean in that direction. So that was really present for me, even very, very young. Mm. And my encouragement to people listening is to, if you haven't, reflect on what it was like for you when you were really young, including your background knowings. What did you know was true that maybe you couldn't put into words or you felt was important or the early longings in you or disposition in you to do one thing or another in one direction or another? So that was a thing. And then bottom line, when I became a psychologist, it actually took me a while 
Mm. And I think for a lot of people, I'll just say for myself, I pushed away foolishly what would really turn out to be my career. And I realized in retrospect that I had formed the view that someone who is truly intelligent is good at many things. Mm. Well, to be good at many things means never specializing in one thing, typically. And so in a funny way, I kept turning away from what was my own particular kind of talent and calling because, well, that was too specific. So I kept moving into things that I wasn't naturally that good at or I hadn't really developed, but it moved me away from my home base, which I finally had to realize, whoa, was having deep, helpful conversations with people. Mm. That was something I've always been drawn to and interested in, even going back to when I was young. It just took me literally into my early 30s before I realized, yo, I ought to actually make a career out of that. And at that point, I shifted out of a more academically oriented developmental psychology master's program into clinical psychology, eventually getting a clinical PhD, and the rest is history. So I know at least loosely that somewhere in between those two points, when you were in college, kind of early graduate school, before shifting into a full-on clinical practice, you were pretty involved with various incarnations of the human potential movement, including uh, starting, I believe, a series of workshops dedicated to interpersonal interaction and becoming more skilled interpersonally. What was the impact that that kind of period in time just sort of had on you and had on your perspectives and your career? I think it was you know, 70s-ish when this was going on. You can correct me with the timeline. Yeah, so I went off to college in 1969, Mm -hmm. UCLA, kind of located culturally. The counterculture was in full throttle. Also, we were at the tail end of the 60s with all the political and cultural ferment of that. Environmentalism, civil rights movement, gay rights movement, women's rights movement, more democratic control of government institutions, kind of on the tail end of the Vietnam War mm. and then edging further with, with Nixon and Watergate. And so that was, the, that was the stew. And I remember the spring of my freshman year. This is the spring of 1970 in which Nixon invaded Cambodia, basically, or Nixon sent our troops into Cambodia. And the campuses around the country erupted. There were four killings in Kent State. National Guardsmen just firing on a crowd of unarmed students. Four of them were killed that day. And so UCLA and almost all the colleges around the country erupted. And I was there for that. Ronald Reagan was the governor of California at the time. I recall walking on campus both the day that the police came on campus in the face of a bunch of student protests. And I saw a lot of people being beaten completely inappropriately. I'm a major fan of law enforcement. I really appreciate that. And that day I saw a lot of misconduct that then was replicated around the country to some extent around the world and other university settings. And so the University of California was shut down. So I had the experience mm. of basically a very strong police presence, uh, walking, watching people who were dressed like students, but were obviously cops wandering through the campus. Uh, Helicopters were buzzing. I was part of uh, kind of uh, on the edges of the student rebellion, a lot of which was (laughs) foolish and whimsical and charming, which included things like flying kites from the top of our dormitory buildings high up in the sky 
to dissuade helicopters from coming close. I mean, okay, come on. This was 1970. So that's really where a lot of stuff began. Mm. And coming out of an utterly conventional suburban background, growing up in a town called West Covina in Southern California with loving, decent parents and so forth, but a very medium graded on a good day, high school, no sense of possibility. I get dropped into UCLA and it's everything's full flood. Yeah. Yeah. Including the human potential movement, all this interesting stuff, educational reform, psychology, rebellion against behaviorism, you know, lots and lots of self-actualization. So much is going on. And I just got really interested. Mm -hmm. So I dove heavily into student activities. I, I got into student politics, got elected to different things, got very involved with programs like counseling programs and mm-hmm. dormitories mm-hmm. I was in, uh, other forms of student reform, basically. To my amazement, as a completely shy, dorky guy mm. going through school who landed in college at 16, really young, I just really flourished there. And I ended up being given in a class of several thousand graduating seniors one of four what are called outstanding senior awards Mm -hmm. from the UCLA Alumni Association, which completely surprised me. And so that was the larger setting, Mm -hmm. you know. And then the year after I graduated, beginning with the tail end of my senior year, I got interested in Eastern philosophy and religion. So that was my invitation into, for the very first time, meditation, Buddhist psychology, the possibility of just enlightenment and awakening, stuff like that. And I got very involved with an experiential learning center Mm -hmm. that was organized by UCLA's professional schools, which then led to being the counselor for so-called the Creative Problem Solving Program at UCLA, which was a consortium of five professional schools at UCLA who created this program which then led to this lucky moment Mm. in which there was going to be a personal growth workshop for students and people in the creative problem solving program. The instructor for that, for some reason, I think health reasons, couldn't do it. And at the last minute, they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I remember as we, I think, went off to Kell's Stardust Lodge, Uh, around Big Bear Lake for this (laughs) residential program involving about 30 or so people, I was just dropped into this Mm -hmm. environment in which I had to lead groups and lead- You were the teacher. Yeah, personal growth workshop. And boom, it was that moment when suddenly you're thrust on stage Mm -hmm. to play the drums and you discover you have a real gift for it. Mm -hmm. Or you know what I mean? You're the the rookie at the end of the bench in basketball. You get called to the game and that's it. And suddenly you're shooting Mm -hmm. threes. Like I just had a gift for it. I dropped in. And like people have that feeling like maybe you ride horses for the very first time. Yeah. Or you, you put a tennis racket in your hand. And you just know, whoa, I'm, I'm called to do this. Mm-hmm. And that's how it was for me. I just dropped into it. I realized, wow, what a fantastic combination of intelligence, teaching, service, cool stuff, personal growth, not stodgy, helpful, down to earth, the whole package. Yeah. And about how old were you when that happened? I think I was 21. Yeah. So really early 20s. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And then out of that, I started creating personal growth workshops like this. 
And at that point, I started experiencing personal growth workshops like the EST training done at a very high professional level. Like, whoa, that's how the big kids do it. Not perfectly, but oh, that's some of how the big kids do it. And that's how the little kids like me, in a way, the small fry could do it as well. That then led to me founding a company with four other people, one of whom eventually became your mother, as you know, Forrest. And this was a seminar company in which we, I created and led most of, and then other people started leading as well, these personal growth workshops. So I look back on all that and I just laugh. I was 24 years old, 24, 25 when I was doing all that. And there I was with people in the room who are twice my age sometimes. And yet somehow it worked well. There was a kind of spirit of adventure and mm. playfulness and we steered really away from cultism. I didn't want any whiff of that. Very egalitarian, open-minded, open-hearted. And a whole community emerged around it. One of the highlights of the whole development there was going with 72 people to Horseshoe Meadows, just in the uh, Sierra Nevada. And looking back down the trail, I was the lead on the trail and looking behind me and seeing over 140 mm, feet, mm-hmm. you know, walking along the trail behind That's me. That's really awesome. Yeah. yeah. Pretty neat stuff. So one of the things that you mentioned just a second ago, kind of alluded to, was this element of contemplative practice. Yeah. How you talked about sort of running into that and going, oh, this could be a thing. And yeah. That's certainly been a big feature of both your life and your professional work is the influence of contemplative tradition, particularly Buddhism. Mm-hmm. When did that really become involved for you in your life? And, and what was kind of the influence of that? Yeah. Well, first, I think, again, like a lot of people, I had a longing inside me and a deep curiosity about what is, and here's where you have to fill in the blank, mm-hmm. what is the most magnificent, extraordinary, mind-blowing reality of all? What's the ultimate? What's the ultimate? And what's possible in terms of human development? So I always was kind of interested in that. What's including what's the alternative Mm. to this world that I was so aware of as a kid of kind of mundane, everyday, pissy, argumentative, stressed, critical, glum being. What's the alternative to that, right? So I was always interested in that, but I didn't know where to find it. I was raised a casual Christian. I was drawn in that direction, but there were so many impediments that it just never really fit for me, never really was right for me. So I was latent. And then along comes this seed of a vision of what Aldous Huxley called the perennial philosophy. Mm. Across all the traditions of the world, various people pointing in the same direction with language and experiences that start converging on the upper reaches of human potential, which may, depending on your cosmology, be windows into the upper reaches of ultimate reality. So that was really cool to me. That was like, whoa. And the world or experience of things or the the possible, the possible that these books and then practices were portals into or invitations into seemed in such stark contrast to growing up in a 
mediocre suburban strip mall, endlessly artificial, kind of tawdry, kind of tacky, uninspired, fragmented environment mm. of, as a city, you know, that I grew up in, in the ways that I grew up there. So that was really important. And I also, I think looking back on it, was very benefited by the notion, particularly in the ways I was orienting to it, which were mainly through the Buddhist lens, that really emphasized personal practice, not taking anything on faith, not waiting for rescue. It's not a frame in which through some conversion experience, let's say you're going to be saved for all eternity. No, it's more like you have to practice. So acknowledging that for many people, after they go through that conversion experience, their practice is still very meaningful to them. So it suited my nature as a kind of step-by-step effort, one foot in front of you, keep churning kind of guy that, oh, there's things you have to do, but you earn the results of your efforts. And when you do them, like sitting quietly for 10 minutes and just coming back to the moment as you watch the grass blowing in the wind around you simple as that, that they actually really work. So that, that made a lot of sense to me. And that was my entry mm-hmm. into this world, you know, now 40 plus years ago. Your first sort of big break, quote unquote, as an, as an author really spoke to some of those themes. It's your first sort of major publication, which is Buddha's Brain. There was another book prior to that that I remember extremely well called Mother Nurture. My relationship with it was mostly, I recall waking up being relatively young and kind of walking into the general area of the kitchen and then the door would be closed and you would be just typing away. And what I think was at the time, one of the different rooms in the house where we had just turned the laundry room into your office and you were just banging <laughs> away on this thing and I had no idea what it was and no real understanding of what was going here other than you were writing a book, whatever that meant. So after that, it, there was a, a period of time where you didn't write, and then you decided to set on this project, which was this book titled Buddha's Brain that really kind of brought together your psychological work with your interest in contemplative practice. So where did that come from, and what was kind of the inspiration for it? Yeah. Well, that first book, as you know, is about the long-term welfare of mothers, Mm -hmm. mother nurture, in body, mind, and relationships, which is an enormously important topic. I was very interested in that topic, still am. I think it's a really under-acknowledged public health issue, the long-term stress and really depletion of the women who are doing all the childbearing and the bulk of child-rearing in both the developed and developing countries of the world. So that was a really important thing. On the other hand, like it happens sometimes in life, the causes and conditions are just not present for Mm. success. And that too is a great lesson. You can do everything right. You can make all the efforts. You can be smart. You can be skillful. And you know... You're just trying to grow roses in a parking lot. You can get some roses going, but they're never going to really take off. And so that was about a five, 10-year period of my life, deeply engaged with it. A lot of writing, a lot of talks, a lot of lectures, a book, but it never, ever really, really ignited for multiple reasons. Um, I think in part having to do with being male, not an academic and not a physician. So that was that part. And then In the back of my mind, I'd always been perfectly clear about something that puzzles me that it's not perfectly clear, which is that this moment of experience is largely, if not entirely, being made by your brain, Mm. embedded in your nervous system, which is embedded in your body. 
moment by moment by moment. So remarkably, what in the world is going on in the brain that's making this moment of hearing, seeing, tasting, feeling, thinking, remembering, wanting, loving, hating, and so forth. So I've always been really drawn in that direction. What's going on in the hardware? I remember reading books back in the 70s, like uh, Lily and other people really doing cutting edge things speculatively about what could be going on in the nervous system that's making the moment of consciousness. But there just wasn't enough knowledge then. Just wasn't enough knowledge. Freud, for example, his training was as a neurologist. His first couple books were on the nervous system, I think, of fish. That Mm. was his background. So there, even then, was a deep interest in how do we embed the mind in the body. But then, only 100 years later, was a critical mass of information coming forward. There were estimates that in the 90s, easily, when I started working in this territory, and then especially, you know, and I wrote Buddha's Brain mainly out of things I was doing in 2005, 6, 7, and 8. And the book came out in 2009. During the middle of those years, 2005, say, estimates were that the amount of knowledge about the brain had doubled in the last 10 years. So lots and lots of things were coming forward. And so I just thought, wow. Let's reverse and engineer the brain of the Buddha Mm. or fill in the blank, the brain of ourselves when we're in our best possible moment. Just if you think about it, look back on your life, recall that one time, maybe they're a handful or maybe you just only have a feeling of it when you were just super dialed in. You were fully present. Maybe it felt like an altered state of consciousness, let's say without drugs you walked out, you looked at the moon, you suddenly felt your relationship with everything, incredible peacefulness, clarity, a sublime happiness. Boom, you were dropped right in. What in the world was going on in your brain when you were in that zone, right? Isn't that a neat question? To me, that's a really, really neat question. How do you then, and how do you reverse engineer back from understanding what was going on in that physical system? In other words, operationalizing peak states and bringing them into everyday life. So that was a lot of what interested me there. And no one had really pulled that together in a big way. And so Mm. I just dove in. I remember your mom and you and Laurel, your sister, staring at me at the dinner table because you had observed that Mother Nurture had not been that successful and I'd put a lot of effort into it. And you said, really? You're going to write a book about what? (laughs) What do you know about the neurology of awakening? And I said, well, a little, but I'm going to learn a lot anyway. And so that's where that began. And and I would just say that having gone back and, and recently read some of the passages in that book, they really stand up from a scientific standpoint. And also what I appreciate in that book which I think is something for people in general to consider for themselves, is this combination of ambition and effort. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, where you're, you're willing to take a big swing. Mm. And on the other hand, mixing my metaphors, you eat the elephant one bite at a time. Mm-hmm. You just take your crack at it one bite at a time. And in the spirit of, of that book, as you know, the cover has this golden image of the Buddha. And in a metaphor that has always bugged your mom, I think of it as like a golden marmot. I'm really drawn to golden marmots because I've seen them a lot in, in the mountains in the sure, Sierra. Yeah. And I, I relate to them. They're mammalian. They're living in neat environments. They're gorgeous. 
They're scrappy, don't mess with a marmot, but they're also loving and sweet. <laughs> and, and they're modest in their own way. Yeah. You know, they're not trying to create some kind of galactic civilization. They're just hanging out in the, you know, in the boulders up in the Sierra Nevada, high in the mountains. But they're good, you know? And so to me, there's the, kind of that spirit in, in Buddha's brain. It's both ambitious and modest. So I know that part of the reason that you went back and took a look at some of the passages from Buddha's brain recently is because you're working on a new project. Connected to that new project is an online program that came out recently. And kind of in the spirit of that, I just want to sort of ask you, what are you excited by these days? Well, you're making me think, Forrest, of first that there's a quotation that is, quote, nothing makes sense in biology without a theory of evolution, Mm, mm -hmm. in a way. It's the overarching underlying framework, and it's a developmental framework. It's how did we get here? Well, you turn the movie backwards, and you rewind the movie, and then you see, oh, to get here, that had to happen just before here, and for that to have happened, well, something had to happen just before it, and you rewind it all the way back, evolution. In the same way, I think nothing makes sense in psychology without a developmental perspective. Mm. The origins, including in early childhood and then as development keeps on going. So I've always had a developmental orientation. I was very awake as a kid and I was very aware of my own developmental process, mainly, especially as a kid, because it was so painful. I was unhappy a lot. And I saw development, honestly, as my escape ticket. Sooner or later, I was going to be freed from bondage (laughs) in various forms in a home life that was not abusive, to be very clear about it. So I've always been drawn to my own development, and I've always been very drawn to the development of others. As you know, I have a real interest in working with children Mm -hmm. and how they develop. And lately, I've gotten very, very interested in the developmental process of what could be called deep practice. The practices that are accessible to everyone. They're not esoteric. You don't need to go through 17 levels before you're finally allowed to do these. And yet they're right at the heart of the matter. So that's my most recent interest. And also I'm late stage in the career. And so I'm bringing together a lot of things and stripping them down to their essences. And I would say, looking back, that's one of the things that's really characterized me maybe because I have a moon in Scorpio or something. (laughs) I've always been really interested in the heart of the matter, but I'm listening to other people. I want to get at like, what's the heart of the matter here? What's what's the essence? What's the really cool transformative idea that's central here? What's the practice that's going to make a lot of difference? Mm -hmm. What's what's the deep root of the problem? And what's at the heart of the solution like Mm -hmm. that? So lately I've gotten very interested in these seven aspects of awakening. And I think of awakening as both process and destination. It's kind Mm. of neat. So awakening is a result. It's also a journey. And these are seven aspects or qualities of awakening and also practices of awakening, which I'll just name them, involve steadying the mind, warming the heart, resting in fullness, being wholeness, receiving nowness, opening into allness, and finding timelessness. Mm. And just saying them has a kind of incantatory quality to it. (laughs) And I think 
we can all relate to these. I've also offered that list of practices into settings in which people are not super duper meditators. They're very normal people. And what I watch, which really interests me, because I care about these, but I don't know if anyone else will. Mm-hmm. But when I talk about them, the whole room gets quiet. People get it. And we may realize that, yeah, there are people who super duper develop receiving nowness or opening into allness, being one with everything, let alone. On a spiritual level. Yeah. yeah. Even on a spiritual level, we go, okay, that's you're, mm-hmm. you've been doing that your whole life. You're farther along on that path than I am. But that said, everyone can get a sense of coming fully into the present moment, at least for a breath at a time. Everyone can get a sense of being connected, that you're part of a larger whole. And I think almost everyone has a sense that, you know, for all that we know, mysteries remain. Timelessness. Yeah, I think that we had a really nice moment recently where I kind of unintentionally nudged you to to frame these seven qualities or seven steps, seven characteristics, seven whatever word you want to use for it, really, in a purely secular framework. And you were able to do so extremely easily. I mean, I think the framing of the material itself does not have to exist inside of a ecstatic (laughs) frame in any kind of way. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, for me, I would say that between the two of us, I tend a bit more secular. I tend to be pretty heavily rational and can be a little critical and a little kind of just skeptical by nature. And I certainly found the material to be valuable on its own merit, entirely outside of any kind of a religious framework, which I think is useful and is frankly in line with the kind of theory of the case of psychological work yeah. where you don't have to buy into something that exists beyond the frames of the mind in order yeah. to obtain value from it. Yeah. You know, just related to that, I have a little saying that I've always been much more interested in the writings of saints than mm. theologians. Mm. Or to say it a little differently, when people are talking about their religion, I'm not that interested. But when people are using their religion, to talk about reality and practice, then I'm very interested. Mm. And I think there's a lot of wisdom to be gained from people who've really devoted their lives to really, really serious practice and the most penetrating possible subjective encounter, experiential encounter with reality as ultimately as possible. And the art, for me a lot, is to filter out what seems cultural or cultish Mm. or overly caught up in tradition or ritual or various accounts and extract from, let's say, the teachings of the desert fathers in Christian contemplative traditions or the ecstatic proclamations of Sufi poets Mm. or people who describe an extraordinary visionary LSD trip or who've done some kind of deep rebirthing which I've done along the way. I've done almost everything, not all, well, close to almost everything you could ever do in the personal growth world. So I guess my, my point about all that is that I think uh, people, sometimes dogmatic atheists, they throw the baby out with the bathwater, as it were. And I think that we can filter out of wisdom traditions that which doesn't speak to you or is nested in a tradition that also was used by people within it to do really horrible things, 
like the Christian crusades or jihads these days, not good, but you can extract what seems to you to be true and useful and then take it from there. To give a very minor plug for one second, the name of the online program is Neurodharma. I'll drop a link to it in the description of the podcast. And if you put in the code being well, just in all caps, when you check out, it'll give you 10% off the purchase price if you're interested in taking a look at that. So depending on kind of how you count here, you've been involved in this endeavor of personal growth and human development and all the way up, as you're saying right now, to the upper reaches of human potential for about 45 years, which is a real long time. It's certainly considerably longer than I've been alive for. So from that 47, 45, however you want to count years, what have you found in your own experience on a day-to-day level in somebody's life really is what makes a difference? Wow. I would say in my own life and having worked with a lot of people, seeing both what's missing that matters and also when it's present, what really helps. I would say what matters most first is a bone deep commitment to your own happiness Mm. in the broadest sense. Maybe that means a bone deep commitment to surviving the next two hours of your life. Maybe it means realizing that you're stuck in a situation you can't get out of for 10 years, but you're going to mark your time as well as you can, preparing for the day you can finally fill in the blank, including walk out the front door of the penitentiary. That bone-deep commitment to your own healing, welfare, and growth, to me, is really, really central. And if it's shaky, as it is in many, many people, or if it's a foreign country, as it is for some people, I think it's really helpful to establish it. And the things you can do to establish it, which is to start with small experiences of something like it, which is where you're, let's say, determined to lift the weight, the last repetition, a set of 10, or you're really firm for somebody else, and to be able to be that way for yourself. I think that's really absolutely central. I'm kind of inspired to mention a couple other things here. The second thing that I, when I look back as well, is to have a sense of amazingness. Words like magnificence, but I really mean that the magnificence of a leaf. I'm looking out the window right now and I'm seeing a jasmine leaf and a trellis. And that leaf is amazing. And to think right now, literally, I'm seeing a leaf based on giant ball of hydrogen gas. That's a big fusion reactor of the sun sending radiation our way that got here eight minutes or so after it left the sun. Keeping that leaf alive through photosynthesis, think of all the evolution there, and then bouncing off the surface of that leaf, which is kind of shiny, hitting retinal receptors in my eyes within about a 20th of a second later, producing the beginnings of the image of that leaf, moment by moment by moment. <laughs> how, can you, <laughs> how can you not, when you recognize that or anything like that, including what's in a grain of sand or a grain of sugar, how can you not just go, whoa, maybe that's the second thing. Whoa, just to be willing to hold on to that perhaps childlike, perhaps sense of awe, like, whoa, 
at reality altogether. Whoa, reality. <laughs> what a trip, right? Or what's that Mark and Mindy line from Robin Williams? Reality, what a concept. That sense leads to a feeling for possibility and gratitude and not wanting to squander this precious human life, even on its worst day. Wanting to make the most use of it. It's like reality is a giant park, a giant game board, and it's got a lot of crud in it. Fine. And still, whoa, what an exploration. So I think that would be a second thing. And, uh, and to find your way into that, however you find your way into that. But I think that it's really important and it kind of goes with a feeling of possibility. I think mm. a lot of people, as Thoreau put it, lead lives of quiet desperation. They're just dropped into their little slots and in their slots, they can't see what's outside the rut that they're in, the ditch that they're in, the trench that they're in. And yet it's so important to keep holding on to the sense of the possible. And I think of it a little bit as pushing back against the walls as they close in of the Buddha talked about it as one of the four forms of attachment that lead to suffering, rites and rituals, he described mm. it as, as a critique of a, the ritualistic, empty rituals of his time. But we can get caught up in that today, these routines, these shoulds, these expectations, including our social masks, like the only way I'm allowed to be is such and such. I think it's really important to just keep pushing back. I think of Gulliver, you know, tied down by a hundred little threads, each one of which he could snap, right? What are the threads that mark the boundaries of our cage closing in? Push back against that. So my second big thing, I would really say. And I think the last one is to have what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset. She mainly applies that uh, originally, at least to academic learning. But what I really mean is a learning orientation, a growth orientation where your attitude is whatever sucks about the current moment or whatever is lame, inept, unskillful, neurotic. I've spent a lot of time in those places, still do sometimes. Whatever is that case about your mind, whatever. In the next moment or breath or hour or day, you can learn something useful. Mm. You can get a little stronger, a little wiser, a little more loving, a little happier. You can heal a little bit. You can learn and grow. You can acquire a trippy fact. I don't care what it is. Like an amazing fact that every element heavier than helium was born inside a star. And so the point is every single day you can learn, you can develop, and no one can defeat you. It's that feeling that goes maybe with that first and second thing that I said here this learning orientation, to just hold on to that possibility that your body may be defeated by your cancer or other people or the circumstances you were born into in which you don't have options, really. But no one can ever defeat you in the temple of your own mind. I think that those are three really lovely points and really wonderful teachings in general for people to be left with and really to think about. I think it's a it's a lovely summary, really, of your work in general and of kind of the three core tenets of it that you've held in all the various regions that you've taught in and all the various ways that you've taught, whether it be through your books or live teaching or whatever it might be. Those really are kind of three of the things that you seem to, to often come back to. So I think that that's as wonderful a place as any to wrap this episode for today. Thank you so much for doing this. Forrest, what a treat. And I wish for you roughly 
35 years from now, as you know, I'm halfway between you and my dad. Mm. He was 35 when I was born. I was almost 35 when you were born. I've joked with you to say that, you know, if you want to see where you're going to be in 35 years, look at me. If you want to see where you're going to be in 70 years, look at your grandfather. And uh, I remember you saying, oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I kind of wish for you that 30 years, 35 years from now, you too have an opportunity to be in a situation like this, reflecting Mm. on your life with such a wonderful being as you, asking you you these kind of questions. Oh, that's incredibly kind of you. I really appreciate that. And to give, I mean, as long as we're going to a very sweet place with people, I think that we've had so many moments recently where we've had a conversation or we've kind of looked at each other and said something to the effect of, wow, this podcast thing. And I wouldn't necessarily say that it's, quote unquote, taken us by surprise. I mean, we both have mindsets where when we start something, we want it to go in a certain kind of direction. We want people to like it. We want it to be good. We, we want it to reach a lot of people, you know, all of those kind of natural things. But I think that earnestly, we've both been a little bit surprised by the number of people who have been interested in listening to these darn things and the questions that we get. And honestly, really, one of the big things has been just the caliber of guests that we've been able to have on the podcast so consistently and have really just been been touched and taken aback and honored throughout the whole process by the amount of attention that people have been kind of willing to spend with us. We've talked often about how the most important currency of the modern world is really attention Mm. and time. And man, willing to take 20, 30 minutes, maybe even sometimes an hour out of your week to to listen to something that we're producing is really quite wonderful. So thank you to everyone who's been listening to us for the last 100 or so episodes. And hopefully we'll be around for 100 more. That's great. I'd like to add my gratitude as well to what you said there for us, to the people who are listening and supporting. Thank you. All right. So until next time, thank you again for listening. 